Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Listeners, this is a brand new episode of Undying Light. Obviously, it's brand new. Why would you have hit play if you hadn't heard it yet? So another new episode in the bank, and we are just uh, technically three short weeks away from finishing the book of Revelation. Actually, we will wrap it up next week, but I have some special guests who will be coming on uh, in just a short period of time uh, to discuss this whole series and so we will be inviting the bible dingers back uh, to undying light and they will uh, kind of act in a roundtable fashion for you and we will discuss really this whole series Uh, we'll look at some of the highlights from the shows that we've talked about some of the aspects to eschatology and just kind of have a interesting conversation and get their perspective so I know they're vigorously preparing for this uh, as I am recording this episode, and I think we are set to record next week. So that will be dropping into your earbuds on the 27th of August. That will be the last episode in this entire series, and we could put a nice big bow on it and shove it in the closet and not come back to it for a long time. Now, I say that with all of the most respect because I have just spent an incredible amount of time doing eschatology. And I am just, I'm at the point where it's a good thing to move on. I love it. I love studying it. But I find it's um, not quite as rewarding as it would be to study more of the promises of the gospel and to dig into the works of Christ and to uh, looking at the apostles' letters and actually cultivating that out. So it'll be nice to conclude this series and, uh, you know, put a box put it in a box, put a ribbon on it and and shove it in the closet. So I'm looking forward to that day when that happens here shortly. So as mentioned, we don't have a lot of time left here in the book of Revelation. We have two chapters left and uh, we're going to look at um, chapters 21 today and then chapter 22 will be next Friday as we conclude. Now this portion of the episode or this like episode itself is a little unique as chapter 21 uh, has kind of a split 
in it uh, between two different parts of Revelation. So as we'd started, I made a notion um, that there are seven parts to Revelation. Uh, this episode concludes part six, and we will actually, at verse nine in chapter 21, move into part seven, which is titled The Great Consummation and Eternal Glory. So verses one through eight are discussing the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to look at that. And then nine through the end of the um, chapter, which is verse 27, we will look at the new Jerusalem. And that's how we will wrap up this episode. Uh, And then we're into um, next week when we discuss more on uh, the new Jerusalem, the river of water of life, trustworthy and true, and the last testament of Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll conclude that whole with the uh, famous um, truth of all eschatology that Jesus Christ is coming back. He is returning. And that is the great promise. So no matter where we fall, whether it's dispensational, hyper dispensational, post millennialist or amillennialist, whatever, uh, or historic premillennialism, whatever bucket you fall on, we all attest to the same truth that no matter how we get there, Jesus Christ is returning and he will take his church and he will eradicate sin and destroy this broken world as we will look at today. Uh, and so I'm very excited uh, to get to the end of 22. I think that's going to be a beautiful little section there. So as before we really get into the content, just a few quick commercials for you. As you know, if you listen to my show long enough, you'll know that I am listener supported. And so you can come and join us on Patreon and contribute to this ministry and help support us financially. You can give as little as a dollar a month or more if you decide. But a dollar a month gets you access to all of the content that I provide offline. The one major benefit is that I do not have a tier system like many other patron groups or shows or uh, platforms out there, if you would. One dollar gets you access to everything. I'm not here to sell the gospel. I'm simply here to sell you my time. And with all that, you'll get access to the shows early as I record them. You'll get access to my sermon notes. You get access to Bible studies and commentaries that I write, schoolwork, school lectures, um, private chats. You'll get access to um, private uh, Bible studies that we do between Undying Light and my church. And you'll get access to um, private videos that I do just for patrons only. So we've done Q&A videos uh, quite a few times this year. All of that is private and uh, included only for the patrons. So With all of that, literally a dollar a month gets you access to it. So please pray about it and consider joining us and becoming one of the family members of Undying Light. We would love to have you. Uh, The more we get, the more opportunities I have to give back to you. So when we hit 75, I'm going to give a commentary set away. When we reach 100 uh, patrons, then I'm going to give a Logos package to somebody. So... We have some goals set up that we're actively trying to work towards and uh, get people to come and join us. But I truly do want you to pray about it first. I want you to, you know, consider this to be a ministry that you give to. Um, But I'm not asking for anything more than a dollar. 
because that's all I want. I want you to join us and I want you to uh, partake in the work that we're doing. Obviously, if you know who I am on social media, then you'll know I'm a Lutheran pastor. Uh, I come out of the Calvinist background, and so I have a lot of influence and a lot of knowledge in these realms. And so you'll see that you know demonstrated and as we can discuss various topics. And it provides some very interesting conversations for people. So it's always nice to have a different perspective, if you would, when considering the text. Now, as I mentioned, I think last week or the week before, we are working on um, some new merch. So that's coming soon. And uh, there'll be new shirt designs and new clothing, hats, I think bags, mugs, water bottles, all that sort Uh, being in the works on top of all that obviously you can always get yourself a copy of logos and get a discount using my uh, show name so you go to logos.com forward slash undying light and get yourself a package of logos bible software and get a discount now the really cool thing here is on august 25th uh, it's a wednesday at 7 p.m central time we will be hosting a webinar for Logos. And so I will be presenting this, and then I will have um, Logos come on and actually walk us through about an hour or so presentation, and we will be discussing biblical study in a digital age. And so we will be examining how Logos is used in all of that to help us uh, enhance our Bible study using the tools and commentaries and study guides that uh, Logos has available, which... Um, the library is uh, immeasurable. You know, I, I think I have about 4,000 volumes in my Logos software, which is incredible because I think I only have a couple hundred books in my office. And so I have, you know, 20 times that on my PC that I can access at the drop of a hat. So really cool. Uh, you will be able to come and join us, watch that, and... Um, we will have more details on social media uh, when that time comes. So keep your eyes peeled on my page. I will be sharing that across Facebook and Instagram as well. So without further ado, let's get us into the text at hand today. And we will see where we are. Uh, I don't think it's super complex uh, but I do like this little analogy I'm going to share with you after I read the text uh, that kind of help us look and examine maybe the, a different perspective here of the new heavens and new earth. Uh, but we will talk a little bit about um, whether we are replacing this earth or it's being renewed. Uh, we're going to look at, you know, some of the things that happen in all of this. Uh, and then we will move into the new Jerusalem. So... Here we go. Verse 1 of chapter 21, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But uh, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All right. There we go. We That is the first eight verses of chapter 21. Uh, let us dig into it here. One of the top movies in 2012 was the film adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. Now, if you know me, I love The Lord of the Rings and I love The Hobbit. I, it was a wonderful book, wonderful movies. And uh, and I know some people didn't like the Hobbit trilogy, but I do. I thought they were wonderful. I love going to Middle Earth and watching these movies. And I really am just like chomping at the bits, if you would, to uh, share my passion with my kids when they get a little older. Uh, my daughter's still a little young for Lord of the Rings. I'm going to give it a few more years, but I can't wait to share with them my love. The Hobbit tells of a group of warrior dwarves whose home was lost to the assault of a terrible dragon. Once their mountain kingdom had been the wonder of the world and their wealth had seemed unending. They dwelt in splendor of jewels and gold. But now their paradise has been lost and they are forced to wander the world in poverty and shame. This presents an analogy to the state of our entire race since the fall of Adam and the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Early in the movie, there's a conversation between the dwarf leader, Thorn Oakenshield, and his uncle, a sage dwarf named Balin. The older dwarf argues the fruitility of Thorn's plan to return to the mountain kingdom and regain his throne. Balin says, what are we, merchants, miners, tinkers, toy makers? Hardly the stuff of legend. So it is with mankind after the fall. We look back to Genesis to the glory of our creation in the image of God, and once we dealt once we dwelt in the garden paradise and walked with God in the cool of the day, but like the dragon that swept upon the Dwarven Mountain, sin made a ruin to our once glorious condition, leaving us adrift in the dust of the world. So what are we, we ask? Businessmen, teachers, plumbers, bakers? Hardly the stuff of glory. Christians look back on a paradise lost, wondering if we could ever return. Has the fall cut us off entirely from our original destiny, so that getting by, the, getting by in this life is the best that we can do? The book of Revelation answers by directing our gaze both backward to the cross, where Jesus freed us by his blood from the penalty of our sin, and forward to the return of Christ in the new heaven and new earth that he brings. In this way, the last book of the Bible answers the flight of the Bible's first uh, Bible's first book. 
The garden that was lost in the beginnings is replaced at the end with the holy city, New Jerusalem. As John describes this coming new reality, he presents a future in which the chief banes of man's fallen condition have been removed. Our evil spiritual enemies are no more. God's people are no more condemned by sin and life is no longer made miserable by the splendor of fertility and death. With the effects of the fall reversed, God's original covenant aim is achieved. Behold, the dwelling of my uh, dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and he and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So we come to this question that uh, can often be um, presented within the Christian world. As we've read this text, John opens this passage saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible states that when Christ returns the new heaven and new earth, uh, which is a way of referring to both the physical and spiritual world order, will be cleansed and renewed in glory. We are reminded by this that the Bible places the final destiny of God's people not in some sort of epiphanal or wispy heaven floating on clouds, but on a redeemed earth where God's creation beginning comes to a glorious eternal end. The New Testament contains abundant evidence concerning the cosmic transformation that takes place after Jesus' second coming. Revelation 20 shows the removal of Satan and his followers and even death and Hades, which are all thrown into the lake of fire. With all of his enemies thus finally defeated and forever put away, the victorious Christ advances the crowning fulfillment of his work, the renovation of the entire cosmos. Paul anticipated this coming achievement in soaring terms of the liberation. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and glory of the children of God, Romans 8.21. So some Christians teach a doctrine in which the present universe is consumed and replaced by a new one, largely on the basis of Peter's second epistle. Peter said that just as the world of Noah was destroyed by the flood, when Jesus returns, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and its works are that are done on it will be exposed, 2 Peter 3.10. On the basis of this language, though, some Christians teach the eradication of the present world and its replacement with a new one. A better understanding is that uh, of, of a cleansing and renewal of the cosmos after Jesus returned. And instead of making all new things, Christ makes all things new. In Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus spoke of a new world, after he returns. In Greek, there's this word polynengenesa. I probably butchered that because I am not very good at Greek. Uh, that is the regeneration, suggesting an analogy between the spiritual rebirth of believers and the coming of Jesus and the transformation of heaven and the earth after Jesus returns. The contrary idea that Christ eliminates the original creation because of sin holds alarming implications. Under this view, Satan would have succeeded in overthrowing the glorious work of God recorded in Genesis 1. Moreover, if God eradicates the present heavens and earth, then, as Cornelius of Venema writes, we would have to conclude that the triune God's redemptive work discords 
rather than renews all things. If Christ's return renews rather than replaces the universe, how do we understand Peter's statement that the heavens will pass away and the, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved? The answer is seen in Peter's analogy with the destruction of the flood in Noah's time. The great flood did not destroy the world itself, but rather removed sinners in judgment and cleansed the world of corruption. Just as Noah departed the ark into a renewed vision uh, version of the old world, which uh, sin was swept away, Christ will usher his church into creation that is pristinely cleansed and made glorious. As Venema writes, once more... But now, in a surprising way, the creation will be a temple fit for the dwelling of God with his people. So we would say, based upon our text, that, and I think we talked about this in an earlier show, where the world essentially needs to be beaten. You know, it needs to be uh, shattered. It needs to be, uh, everything needs to be broken down and cleansed away it would be like you know making bread and you are kneading the dough and you have to you know get out all the air bubbles and all the chunks and you have to smooth it all out before you can do anything with it so you take that big ball and you smash it all out and that's essentially what we would be seeing here is that this world needs to be eradicated all the sin and death and everything that's in it will be eradicated and so um it's not going to be, you know, this earth pass away and then the new one comes. It's just that Christ is going to make all things new. And we will see that those things will be regenerated and revitalized. Revelation 21 verse 1 actually adds a interesting little uh, concept here and a provocative statement, really, uh, that sums up the removal of all evil with this. Quote, unquote, the sea was no more. In the symbolism of Revelation, the sea has a theological rather than typological meaning. The sea is the realm of evil and the rebellion against God. Psalm 74 describes salvation as God's breaking the head of the sea monsters and crushing Leviathan. The great mythical sea beast that represents idolatrous opposition to God. James Hamilton writes that for the Israelites, the sea was the, quote, great, dark, unknown from which evil comes. This provides the answer to the question, what is the shortest book in all history? The answer is the naval heroes of ancient Israel. There are no naval heroes in Israel. The reason is that God's covenant people avoided the sea as a source of chaos and destruction. In Revelation twelve seventeen, Satan quote, quote stood on the sand of sea, of the sea and then raised up his beast out of the sea. In chapter seventeen through twenty, John is shown that the removal of the dragon, his beast, the harlot, together with them, the entire wicked program. Finally, even the sea from which they came will be no more. How wrong would it be, therefore, for Christians to say we are destined? To sin like everyone else, we hard we are hardly stuff of legend, but we are the future heirs of a sinless glory. Yes, we live now east of Eden in the wilderness of sin, but we are destined for a world in which this, there is no sea. And on this basis, Paul urges the Ephesians never to partner with the agents of evil. He explains for what, for at one time you were 
darkness, but now you are the light and the Lord and the Lord. You are the stuff of biblical destiny. Therefore, Paul urges, walk as children of light, Ephesians 5, 8. Do not give in to temptation or compromise with the evils of this wicked age. Christians are to anticipate now the renewal of creation, where there will be no evil, no transgression, and not even the temptation to sin. Think about that. Not even the temptation to sin. Not even temptation to sin. Hebrews 6, 5 says that the believers in Christ have tasted the powers of the age to come. What a beautiful truth. Now, I, again, I, I find that so many of us uh, get wrapped up into the politics and the polls of this world today, and we are swayed from one uh, extreme of the pendulum to the other. We find ourselves gripped with this, how do we answer the complicated uh, stresses of this world? How can we fight against an evil that seems to never uh, lose? And it's true. We, we are literally standing against the foes of God who are incredibly powerful, but we know that we serve a God that is far more, infinitely more powerful than the petty governments and rulers of this age. Every age of Christians has faced some sort of dilemma. There has rarely been peace for Christians in this world. And today is not any exception to that. We face an incredible opposition and we face incredible challenges. And I think one of the beautiful things that I've learned in this study is the future promise of heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, and the promise of that there will be no more evil, no more transgression, no more sin, no corruption, no uh, political ideologies to run rampant. It is solely governed and managed by Christ for his people. And so this second feature that we see in the new creation is ushered in here by Christ's return is the vision of the church as we will then be, and quote, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of the heaven from God. Isaiah has foreseen the redeemed Jerusalem that is made righteous by God's coming and that he receives a new name reflecting a marriage relationship between uh, for the love of God. Now, I was doing a little research and I thought this was interesting. If we turn to Isaiah 65 and we look at verses 17 through 25, this is what uh, we can sum it up. The final restoration of the Lord's people in all creation. This vision further defines the new things mentioned earlier. Verses, uh, chapters 42, verse 9, and 48, verse 6. With earthly imagery, the prophet is trying to help his generation understand the blessings of eternal life. Luther emphasizes that the blessings of God's new creation begin now for believers. This is what Luther says. He is not speaking only of the spiritual heaven, but he makes all things new, spiritual and physical. Although I do not see a new heaven and a new body in us, but only the one born of our parents. Yet we believe it. We must turn the sack inside out and then they will appear. The promise is everlasting. Rejoice in it. Peter says this. In 1 Peter 1, 9, as the outcome of your faith, you obtain the salvation of your souls. This salvation is already prepared. Peter 
is a is as certain as it were already done then he says but the revelation is awaited then we will we shall see what we cannot now receive with the mind therefore whoever is tormented by this feeling of sin and death let him rise again in the world and return of christ and say my christ lives so a beautiful little imagery here this new Jerusalem, the new holy city, um, because this city is explicitly identified with the bride, it is best taken as representing the collective people of God. Uh, this is what Luther writes here on the New Zion. He says, God's house is found where God dwells with us, and we are his household. Yes, his sons and daughters, and he himself is our father, who speaks and deals with us and brings it about in the most intimate way that the church is also the gate of heaven. For he dwells with us in order that we may enter into the kingdom of heaven. And what is more delightful, he comes first and appears to us on the ladder. He descends and lives with us and he speaks and works in us. And so we get this beautiful imagery given to us of this new city we have no more corruption no more death no more tears this dwelling place that's forever with god and our blessed hope it has been said that those who forget the lessons of history are doomed to repeat it this converse is true when it comes to the bible's revelation about the future without this vision of the new heaven and new earth we will live without hope that christ offers without the purpose he supplies, and without the glory he promises. In The Hobbit, Balin tells Prince Thorn, what are we? Hardly the stuff of legends. Don't let anyone say such things to you. The Bible teaches that you are children of God, heirs with Christ for eternal glory, and the people in whom God himself will dwell and whose faces light of his glory will shine. How can this be? Because Christ has come to conquer sin, and Christ is coming back to bring the fullness of salvation. A holy city, a beautiful bride, a tearless everlasting life, a loving divine Savior who awaits the consummation of our love. Who will be there? All who confess their sins, trust in the blood of Christ, and believe in the gospel of his salvation. What now are we to do? Paul answers in the terms of what God's grace has taught us. This is coming from Titus chapter 2. Paul writes, To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. That is how we live in the present age. Let's carry on. We have just a few verses left um, in this particular part of Revelation, verses 5 and through 8. Uh, and we've looked at this, and I've made this notion here. Um, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. We've talked a little bit about that. He says, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. Uh, then God gives him, makes this declaration, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers 
will have this heritage and I will be their God. He will be my son. And then he talks about how the cowardly, faithless, detestable, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and <clears throat> liars will be in the lake of fire. So we get this uh, kind of closing summary here of this particular part that God is making this statement, the God of truth, the God of life, and the God of justice. And we start to dig into this particular portion of the text as we wrap up part six of our Revelation series. And part seven is, again, like I said, made up strictly of the last few verses of chapter 21 and all of chapter 22. So there's a lot of different sections in chapter 22 to look at. So if we look at verses five and kind of through the end here, we see the new creation has already begun to appear through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the spirit. However, it will not be completed until the day of Christ's return. In verse six, it is done, echoes John 19.30. In that context, Jesus is pronouncing that the redemption has been won. Here, God announces that the final restoration has been complete. As we see this spring of water, this is probably an example of baptismal imagery. Uh, we don't, there's really not a lot that we can dig into this particular uh, text. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Um, if I look at some of the notes I have on that, let's see what we can come up with for you here. So the marvel here in this particular kind of context, these few verses here, is that the spring that God provides both satisfies our thirst and awakens us to deeper thirsts for more. The new world that God brings in the end will provide the fulfillment of our deepest longings, but at the same time, our experiences of God's glory will create still deeper longings so that our thirst is being eternally satisfied more and more. Bruce Millen writes this, to know God and to thirst to know him more and more is the paradox of heaven. Bernard of Clairvoy captures the biblical idea of eternal blessing. He writes, we drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. So often we see water used as one of refreshing in the Bible. It's to renew us, um, strengthen us even. Uh, it's also used in our baptisms. And so there's a lot of symbology in this particular verse and how we can really decipher it. But I think as we look at... Uh, these verses, I think it pays good attention to understand the preceding verse here, uh, the postceding verse that we will look at. God offers to provide salvation like a spring of water and speaks of the experience of life that he offers the thirsty through Jesus. But he has another aspect of life when he speaks of the relationship that the, f the faithful will fully enter into the end. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. The citizens of God's eternal city enjoy the privilege of knowing the true and living God as their own father. Fathers are close to the hearts of their children and delight in their company. And while earthly fathers often fail, Christians have a perfectly heavenly father who has gone to infinite lengths as to so as to spend eternity giving himself to his children. So we 
truly get this wonderful picture of God and his perfect love for us and his perfect justice as he wraps out this section here. And he says that all of the sinners and uh, those who have rejected him will be wiped away. They are gone. They are no longer here. They are um, suffering, if you would, in the lake of fire and sulfur. That is the wonderful truth that we get to see in this new heaven that we no longer have to deal with this um, concept of sin, death, the devil, or any of those who are corrupted. No more of that will be found. So as we turn our attention to the last handful of verses, we're going to try to work through some of this text. Uh, Much of it's descriptive, so we will um, be able to kind of work through the text uh, quickly. Verse 9, I'm not going to read all of this text, but I'm going to read the first couple verses here. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of uh, of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the mountain, or coming down out of heaven from God, having... The glory of God, its radiance like a rare, the most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. And on the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city was 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So then he goes on, John goes on here, verses 15 through 21, and is describing what he sees with the cities. And then he wraps this out 22 through the end. He says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God of the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring glory will bring glory into it, and its gates will be never will never be shut by day, as there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and to the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor, nor anyone who has, who does what is detestable or false, but only who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this wraps out the end of chapter twenty-one, and what we are seeing here is this beautiful city, and we get this beautiful um, picture painted to us: uh, this radiant city, this well-founded walls, faith beholding God's city. We get our measurements of the holy city, the preciousness of this holy city, the redemptive fulfillment of this holy city, uh, the pearl of a great price. And then we have these last couple of verses, a city with no temple, a city with no lights, a city with no sin. That truly is a remarkable thing. So the beautiful bride, verse 9 begins the final of seven visionary cycles of the book of Revelation. As I said in the few minutes ago, we were concluding part six, and now we are on the seventh uh, visionary cycle. And uh, verse nine kicks us off with that. We see 
this angel's invitation here, come, <clears throat> in verse 9. But back in Revelation 4.1, John is summoned into heaven to witness God's plan for the church age, the beginning of the cycles of the visions from chapters 4 through 16. And in Revelation 17.1, John is told to come, this time to witness the final judgment and final destruction of Christ's enemies. Now John is called to witness the bliss of Christ's people in the eternal glory. John makes a point here of standing, stating that this summons came from one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. G.B. Card and, uh, suggests that this assignment was a reward from the angel's prior faithfulness. Perhaps, he writes, John believed that the demolition squad had also an interest in the reconstruction for which they had cleared the ground. From our perspective, this angel of wrath reminds us that the fulfillment of God's plan relies equally on God's work of judgment and of salvation. Seeing the angel who earlier condemned the great prostitute, 17.1, warns us that all of history is summed up by the two women of Revelation. We must belong either to the harlot Babylon, doomed to perish in the wantingness of this life, or to the bride of God's son, blessed to enter into glory through the holiness that begins even now. So we get this beautiful picture painted for us in this uh, magnificent, radiant city. And this vision begins with the reference of Christ's bride. The bulk of the passage describes the church as the holy city of God. These ideas may be joined to remind us that the vision of the walls and gates describe the people of Christ themselves. John was carried away in the spirit to a great high mountain, which he ascended spiritually, not physically, to see his own future together with the whole of the church. An angel brings John to a high mountain where this city is located, and Isaiah foretold, It shall come to pass in the later days that on the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Looking at the scene, Revelation 14.1 earlier revealed the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with a great host of his eternally blessed people. Three times in the Gospels we read that Jesus retreated to the mountaintops to pray during times of difficulty. And from, from Mount Sinai onward, mountains are associated with God's presence. So it is natural for Jesus to meet there with his father, anticipating as well as his future dwelling of eternal uh, communion with his people on the mount, on the high mount of God. So we start to, again, put these ideas together and start to understand the, the significance of how this text lays out for us and why it is um, good for us to understand, and as I mentioned numerous times, this show is not exhaustive by any means, uh, because there is just some of the text that we will not be able to explore fully, but we just kind of move through it. But we do need to understand this picture that we see of the new Jerusalem and how it is a representative of this beautiful city that's going to come and we see symbols and symbolical uh, concepts being given to us with the 12 gates the of the which represent the 12 tribes or actually the names of the 12 tribes are inscribed on them and it says that on each side of the city there are three gates uh, and then it has 
12 foundations, which are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we, John is building us this picture of how the city is going to look and the importance of these you know, are relevant for the Christian to understand that upon the 12 apostles is the church. What they wrote is exactly what we should be teaching. We can't deviate from that. We have to lead people to Christ by what the apostles did. And we point people to Christ just as the prophets once did. So not only is John shown the church as a beautiful bride and a holy city radiating the glory of God, but this opening section of the final visions of Revelation adds details about the wall that surrounds Jerusalem to come. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates were 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were inscribed. A wall surrounding a great city has a purpose of providing security. Uh, there are admittedly no enemies remaining for the final judgment, or after the final judgment, but the wall conveys the security of salvation inside the city as well as the protective character of God for his people. It is a great high wall, symbolizing the irrevocable care of God in saving his own. John Newton expressed the safety that belongs to Christians not only in eternity, but equally in this present age. This is what he writes, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of God. He whose word cannot be broken formed thee in for his own abode on the rock of ages founded. Who, what, can, uh, what can shake thy sure response with salvation's wall surrounded? Thou mayest smile at all thy foes. So we see how this, the, the city is well built. It has high walls to protect us and keep us safe and uh, f- forward looking and understanding that God does care for his children. As a Christians, we look ahead to the holy city in the age to come. We thank God that this destination is better than the journey. We know that Paul called our blessed hope in the return of Christ and the glory of things he brings. And for all of the many blessings of this life, we, like Abraham, face present trials and disappointments by looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, the things of this world, uh, of the world to come, become real to us now. We thus begin to reflect now some of the glory of God at the end will radiate from us like glittering jewel. So John continues this portion. He gets into the measurements of the city. Um, I think we'll probably not spend any time here, but he does give us these um, descriptive measurements and he works through this um, similar to how uh, Moses wrote the measurements of the tabernacle and um, then of the temple we see as it's constructed uh, later in Old Testament period. And so we get to see how that uh, equates over. I really kind of am more drawn to the preciousness here of the holy city, not so much in the the measurements. You know, verse 17, it says he also measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement, uh, which is also an angel's measurement. Um, Verse 16, it goes back a little bit and tells us, some other measurements but what i'm really drawn to is the next set of verses where we start to actually see the imagery and the magnificence 
and the beauty of this holy city. In addition to these city's dimensions, we are also told of the precious metals and materials used in its construction. John tells us here, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Verse 21 adds, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and the street of the cities were pure gold, transparent as glass. In proper parlance, this imagery is sought to promise material wealth to those who go to heaven. The actual point, though, is that the glorified church reflects the glory and beauty of the holy God. Jasper probably refers to a quartz that is uh, flecked with various colors. The gold in the streets is pure and transparent. In our world, it is physically impossible for metal to be clear, but here the purity of gold is such that God's light shines through it. The point is that the splendor is even the purest gold is inadequate to describe God's majesty. So here the gold is like a crystal that radiates with God's glory. And so I am just, I'm really sitting in an awe just reading some of these notes and thinking about the magnificence of this particular city. But I really want to close out this show because, again, we can spend all the time we want talking about uh, the jewels and gems here that John is writing about. But I really want to highlight these last few pieces of truth. This is a city with no temple. And so as we see that God is going to reside with us and we don't have to, you know, we don't have to wait for a priest to go into the holy of holies anymore. We are now residing with God. His light radiates uh, fully and acts as um, the day and there is no more night. We have a city that requires no lights because God is so bright and translucent that we are are lit with his, you know, his presence. And it's a city with no sin, a city where, as I've said just a little bit ago, that we don't have to deal with the transgressions, the temptations, or any of that unwanted garbage in our life. We truly get a city that is sin-free. So I think that is going to wrap up our portion here on chapter 21, a little bit of a shorter episode. But um, again, like I said, we could spend all the time we want talking about the jewels and and their representations. Um, And we'll probably, we did spend another 25 minutes looking at all that context. But I think it really just pays us to look and just marvel at this beautiful city that's, you know, would, would come and to understand the major significance that this city is the dwelling place of God and Christians, and there will be no more sin, no more tears, no more death, none of that. We are given this beautiful eternal city to dwell with God forever. That is the promise that Christians can take into the into their lives and go into this world and share with other believers and non-believers even. So with that, I am wrapping the show up. We have one more episode to Uh, work through the last bit of revelation and then we will move on to our next topic so ladies and gentlemen thanks for hanging out with me Uh, i hope that you have been edified thus far by this series and i pray that if you um, 
enjoy it that much, go back and re-listen to some of the episodes or catch up on the episodes if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to them all yet. There are a lot that we've done in this whole series. And so I'm praying that you can use this to help enhance your studies, but please, all means, utilize other sources, other commentaries, and other books to help read through the material. And I will see you guys next week as we wrap up our study on the book of Revelation. Until then, God bless. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.